Here's what she did. No, I'll, well, we always say, like, imperfection is why we're at church. It's the best reason. Caroline, that was great. Um, anyway, so, so real quick, like, how many people have read the Bible in the past week? Past week. Okay. Um, I think this is probably true of all of us. I saw about four or five hands. I, I think we don't know what to do with this thing, right? We don't know what to do with the Bible so much of the time. Uh, you know what's funny? When I was young, I used to think that, I, I legitimately thought this. I used to think that, um, that Jesus came, he taught, he healed, he did all those wonderful things. He died, he was resurrected, he showed himself again and went back to uh, heaven. And when he went back to heaven, uh, a beautiful leather-bound copy of the Bible came down uh, with, with the complete New Testament in it, right? And the funny thing is, is I think we still, we, while we know that not to be true, I think we still have that mentality about the Bible. Like it was just there. There it is, God's, God's words for all of us to read and obey. And um, you, you know it wasn't uh, until 334 years after Jesus' ascension that the, the New Testament actually came in the way that we read it now. Did you guys know that? 334 years, a bishop named, Anath- I can't even say his name, Anathesis of Alexandria was the first to have the New Testament the way that we know it. Let's put that in perspective. Let's say for us, in 1683, somebody came and did something. Okay, 1683, someone came to name the place, Massachusetts. They taught, they healed, they did a bunch of wonderful things, uh, and they had Jesus' life. And then just last Thursday, before you went to the Olive Garden in Times Square, because I know that's where you hang out, before you went there, you were like, finally, I completed the work that this man did in 1683, and it's ready. Like, do we get that our Bible is not this thing that was dropped down from heaven with God's words all over it? Do we understand that? And so it's okay. We, we can ask questions about it. We can have thoughts about it. There are contradictions around Scripture, right? You know, there's like hundreds of contradictions around Scripture. And, and what happens with the violent God in the Old Testament? I don't understand that. And, and when, when um, God makes a bet with Satan in the book of Job, and that's why Job suffers, that feels really, really wrong and really mean. And so what we tend to do is we tend to say like um, one of two things. We say, I'm going to throw this Bible away because there's crazy contradictions and I don't like the violence of God or whatever else. Or we, like, hang on to this thing. And here's what I think we do when we hang on to this thing. I think we make the Bible into an idol. We make it into an idol. That's what we do with it. So I would dare say that what we do is we take Jesus and we twist Jesus and we fit Jesus into the Bible so that Jesus becomes this palatable, comfortable thing that that, that, uh, helps us read our Bible better rather than us, like, following Jesus and using the Bible uh, as a witness, right? That's, That's what happens. Um... I'll give you an example. Oh, this was last year. I wrote this thing for the HuffPost, Jesus, Jesus the Refugee. I wrote this thing about Jesus being a refugee, and I got a lot of angry emails. <laughs> uh, but one of the angry emails, it was really fun. They're like, um, they're like, you know, you claim that Jesus was a refugee. I guess you love all refugees then. And I was like, well, Jesus was a refugee, and yes, I do love refugees. And then this person said, well, what do you think of this? And they sent me this scripture. I'm the gate. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will come and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. And his point was that we needed to keep refugees out um, and create a gate that would bring people in. And I was like, you have completely and utterly twisted scripture so that it fits you. That's what I mean by making the Bible an idol. That's what we're talking about here. Someone else was like, um, hey, you know, we've made this Bible into so much. Uh, you know, it's really a story about Israel and in, in, in their growth and then Israel in the time of the Roman Empire. 
And I was like, you're right, it is. And they're like, so you're telling me that the only inspired words of God have only come from Israel during, this time, during these two periods. Uh, and I looked at what Israel was in the time of Jesus. It was about 500 square miles in the, of, of the Roman Empire. Uh, and the Roman Empire was about the size of the United States when you pieced it all together. And so, you know that Houston is 500 square miles? Nothing good ever comes out of Houston, does it? But, um, somebody here's from Houston. Yep, sorry. Um, <laughs> you, you, you're the good thing. Um, and, and so it gets you thinking, right? Like why? Why is it that we have to, uh, you know, why is this the only inspired words? And why are people going, nope, this is it. We're going to twist and turn and push Jesus into it to make it fit. And so what I see us doing is throwing this thing away. Now, those who don't throw it away generally break it down into two categories. Category one, the Bible has become for us a legal constitution. If you have read the Bible to figure out what you can and cannot do, raise your hand. You've used it as a legal constitution. If you have read the Bible to figure out what you need to do to make sure you're saved, raise your hand. Legal constitution. I have two, by the way, so I should be raising my hand on one of these. Uh, if you've used the Bible to prove a point, raise your hand. I should raise both my hands. We are reading it as a legal constitution. This is not what scripture is for. Scripture is not that something that we take into a courtroom and we look for codes and different things and go, oh, there you go, that's it. This is what it is. I proved you wrong, or I proved it right, or whatever it might be. That's not the Bible at all. But when we make the Bible an idol, it becomes our legal constitution. Now, I said this a lot, and I stand by this. The Bible is a book of letters. It's a book of love letters. It's a book of poems. It's a book of songs. It's a book of prophecies. It's a book of accounts. It's this wonderful library, right? And yet I see some people, in fact, some people have said to me, wow, Jonathan, it's a wonderful library, um, but I still don't believe it because it's like songs and letters and everything else. And I'm like, no. What we're trying to do is we're trying to like look at a poem in scripture and read it like we would read a textbook. Like that's not interesting. That's not going to get us truth. Or we're going to try to read, um, let's say, the book of Job, which was uh, a really interesting account that was told around campfires in the B.C., uh, times And we sit there and we go, well, I'm going to find out the truth of why they're suffering. No, the truth of why they're suffering in the book of Job is that God and Satan made a bet. But when you recognize that it's just a story, a story to talk about our suffering, all of a sudden there's truth that we find in it. And so there are new ways to look at the God-inspired truth of our scripture. In fact, during this Y series, I'm looking forward to preaching this the most because for me in the past two years, this Bible matters more than anything else. So why Forefront? Why does Forefront use the Bible? I'm going to talk about why we believe the Bible is the truly inspired Word of God. Okay? The way that I'm going to do it is I'm going to tell a few stories. You guys alright with that? Good. Let's start telling some stories. I want to tell you that the first story is about a, a, um, a God named Marduk. You guys ever hear about a God named Marduk? Good. Some of you have. Alright. Some of you have it. It's okay. Uh, Marduk was a Mesopotamian God. And there was these two really big uh, Mesopotamian gods. They were the biggest ones, Tiamat and Quingu. And they wanted to kill Marduk and Marduk's friends. Marduk and his friends were lesser gods. Tiamat and Quingu said that the lesser gods were being loud and obnoxious and they wouldn't sleep. Sounds like our kids, right? And um, so Tiamat and Quingu said, we're going to go ahead and kill the lesser gods. Well, Marduk steps up. And instead of all the lesser gods being killed, Marduk steps up and kills Tiamat and Quingu. Right? And from Tiamat... Marduk takes a sword and splits Tiamat in half, and half of the, uh, Tiamat's body becomes the, ti the Tigris River. The other half becomes the Euphrates River. And then from the body of um, the other god, 
comes the rest of the waters and the heavens and the earth. And then from the blood of the younger gods that were slaughtered by Marduk uh, comes humanity. Humanity comes from that blood. And so uh, Marduk is the, is the god, and as the warrior god, Marduk sits on his throne, and at his feet are, uh, he's made the, the bodies of um, the younger gods as his step stool, and that's how he rules the earth. Marduk. So, why am I telling you this story? Because if you are an Israelite, and you're captured by the Babylonian Empire, and you're enslaved, you are forced to worship a god named Marduk. Just like the Israelites were captured by the Babylonian Empire. And if you're forced to, to worship this god Marduk as you're captured and enslaved, you're sitting there going, I, have, I worship another god. I worship a, a, my Hebrew god. And my Hebrew god, my Hebrew god is way more loving. In fact, my Hebrew god, my Hebrew god created the earth, not, not Marduk. And my Hebrew god did it by breathing life into it. My Hebrew god did it by calling it out. And when my Hebrew god called it out, he said it was good. And my, my Hebrew God decided that there was going to be living things, living creatures, and they were going to replicate it, and, and we were going to have free will in order to replicate it, and, and that was good. And my living God, from dust, from the dust of the earth, which he said was good, created me. And that's good. And so while you, Israelites, are enslaved and being made to worship a God, Marduk, there are a bunch of Israelites writing this beautiful poem. And what beautiful poem is that? creation story in Genesis. That's what they're writing. If we make a, an idol out of the Bible, we start to ask the wrong questions in that creation story in Genesis. When the Bible becomes an idol, what we tend to do is go, well, uh, it says seven days. Is the earth 6,000 years old? And I don't know, Adam and Eve, it just looks like they have two sons. How did they get married? How did, like, do you see why those are the wrong questions? Those were never meant to be the truths. The truth was that there is a God who, is, who, who shows power by withholding power. The truth is that there is a God who says that you are created and you are loved and you are good, right? So you, when you're enslaved, there is a, a God that you have that says, I breathe life into all of this and all of this is good. This is good news. This is the truth of God. This is the inspired truth. So how about us? How about us? If we are at a place where we're feeling enslaved to something, anything, I know there's times I feel enslaved to like sin issue, things that I'm just not doing well in my life. I feel enslaved to someone else. I, I have my priorities wrong. I'm not operating in the way I can operate. The truth of this, the truth is that there is a God who says you are created and you are good. You are never far from me. You are good. I've given you free will to replicate and to use what you have here. It is good. That's the truth of the scripture. It's not about, well, is the earth this bit? cares. That's not what Jesus is trying, what, God, what God's trying to convey here. God is trying con to convey that we are God's creation and we are loved and we are good. Here's what John says about this story. I like what John says about it. He says, I go to Forefront because it's a church that teaches God's inclusive love and not just a book of rules to follow. And that's what he got out of that. Uh, I'm going to stick around in Genesis though. Did you guys bring your Bibles with you? Your Bible apps on your phones? You have them? Pull them out good time. And let's go to Genesis 13. I'm going to read Genesis 13 to you guys. Genesis 13 says this. It says, Abram went up from Egypt to Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. 
is not the whole land before you. Let's part company. You go left, I'll go right. You go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abraham, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. How many people find this incredibly exhilarating? <laughs> How many people find this incredibly boring? I was bored reading it. I was like, man, I'm reading this. This is boring. This is incredible. This is actually really, really interesting. Uh, Abraham and Lot, they go their separate ways. Lot lands in a place called Sodom. Have you heard of Sodom before? Have we heard of Sodom? Yeah. And then Abraham becomes the father of Israel. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them. No, I'll stop, I'll stop. Uh, so, so, so anyway, so that's what happens, right? And so uh, Lot, as we know, if we know the story, runs into a ton of trouble in Sodom, Right? Runs into a lot of trouble. And God is very, very clear as to why uh, Lot uh, runs into trouble in Sodom. It's because the people of Sodom are incredibly wicked for not welcoming the widow and the poor and the stranger. That is why. Find it and read it in your scripture. Um, and so Sodom is destroyed. Lot's wife is destroyed. Lot uh, has to escape with his daughters. His daughters get him drunk. And they, and they get him so drunk that he blacks out. And then he, uh, his daughters make him impregnate them. And so out of that... Uh, Incest, out of that uh, comes the nation of Moab. The nation of Moab comes from that. Now Abraham is over here. It's Israel, right? God's chosen nation. And so for years upon years, there were battles between the nation of Moab and between the nation of Israel. Lots of battles. In fact, when someone saw someone who was a Moabite, uh, they were called the whore. That's what they were called. They, they were literally oh, the whores. These were the whores that were fighting. So you have this incredibly bad blood between two nations that really come out of the same family. Okay, that's what you have. Now, if we are making an idol out of scripture, what, what are we going to do? We're going to focus in on Lot. We're going to focus in on Sodom. We're going to pick apart issues in the Bible and figure out what was trying to be said three, four, five, six thousand years ago um, that have to deal with today. That's what we're going to try to do if we're making the Bible an idol. If we're looking for truth in Jesus Christ, truth in God, and we're looking at it differently. And here's how we're looking at it. We have to go all the way to another book. How many people have heard of the book of Ruth? The book of Ruth, okay. So in the book of Ruth, we have this woman. Her name's Ruth, who is a Moabitess. What does Moabitess mean again? Right? In fact, there's four chapters in the book of Ruth. And 16 times she's called a Moabitess. 16 times. Dothan wants to let us know something, right? And so 16 times she's called that. But guess what happens in that book? In that book, there's a kinsman redeemer, a man of Israel named Boaz, right? And Boaz sees Ruth, and he doesn't see her as the Moabitess that others see her as. He sees her and takes her and takes on compassion uh, and, and, and takes on uh, a sense of responsibility for this woman, this, this Ruth. And Ruth is not some weak Moabitess. She's this incredibly strong woman who knows what reconciliation looks like. And by the end, you get these beautiful, beautiful words in the book of Ruth. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he be famous throughout Israel. Now, if we take a step back and we make this Bible not an idol, try to look at what Jesus is up to and what God is up to in the scripture, what do we see? We don't see like, well, that's great. He saved her. We see here are two nations. Two nations split a long time ago. 
two nations at battle, two nations at war, two nations that God has always seen as his creation, that God has always seen as, as one that he wants to see reconciliation happen. And in the book of Ruth, we get the story of the reconciliation between Moab and Israel. That's what we get. Reconciliation, I need it in my life. You don't have to raise your hand. The reconciliation between you and God, reconciliation between you and another, reconciliation between you and an idea or a thought, it's a reconciliation that's needed. The truth of Scripture, why Scripture matters at forefront, is because there's a bigger picture here, and God is always pursuing, looking, creating reconciliation. Jess Rudy says this, since coming to Forefront three years ago now, I've come to feel a peace about exploring scripture and making decisions for my own faith, taking time for me to make sense of it in my own way, determining what resonates with me and how God is speaking to me through scripture without fear of others telling me that my understanding of scripture is wrong. I've really grown and appreciated hearing others' understanding of scriptures. I really like it when ideas conflict and it shows me that God speaks to us through scripture in different ways and God is God to all of us wherever we are in our journey. There is space at forefront for all of that, all of us, and that's why it matters to me. When we are able to stop making the Bible an idol, we see a bigger truth, a bigger picture. Um, I love Paul. How many people have heard of Paul before? That guy's a heretic. He's the worst. Um, in fact, he heals a couple people in this Greek city called Lystra, um, and they 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 are in Greece, right? So like Zeus is their god, you know. So they start calling him Zeus, and he was with Barnabas, and they call Barnabas Hermes because, you know, your gods can take on human form. And then Paul goes, and Paul says this. He says, no, friends, why are you doing this? We are only human. We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Now, you might not think anything of that. Paul is a giant heretic. He is upsetting everybody and he's messing with the Bible and Paul should know better because he was a teacher of the law. So what he should know is this. He should know that in Deuteronomy 5.10 it says but I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey his commands. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not let you go unpunished if you misuse his name. Then Exodus 20 says you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain for the Lord will not hold guiltless anyone who takes his name in vain. Well, only thing that you were allowed to say if you were part, uh, if you were a Jewish follower of, of God, is Yahweh, Yahweh. And when Paul shows up and he's talking to the Greeks, that living God, he says the living God does not transfer, translate into Yahweh. Transfer translates basically into this rough, um, like a Greek God you don't know about. Is basically what he says. Completely against the law. He would have known this, just like it's completely, you know, completely against the law. He believed, he was breaking laws here. Why is this okay? Remember, we don't have the New Testament yet. The New Testament's not going to come around for like another 327 years at this point. Why is it okay? It's okay because there's a bigger picture happening. Once again, we see God working to unify and reconcile all of his creation back to him, even the Greeks. When we make the Bible an idol, we miss out on that opportunity because we go, well, the law says not to take the Lord's name in vain. And I know there have been plenty of times I've got my wash, my my mouth washed out with the soap for taking the Lord's name in vain because my mom was afraid for my, you know, salvation. But when we switch it up and we see that Paul completely takes it out of context, 
disrupts the law. We see he's doing it because he knows there's a bigger picture, a reconciliation and unification between God and God's people, even the Greeks. This is why the, the Bible matters at Forefront. Andy Churn says this, I'm most drawn to the fact that Forefront encourages an active and questioning faith, an active and, active and questioning faith in Scripture. Forefront of bodies embraces and nurtures that tension. It doesn't try to suppress it, wash it away, or create euphemisms for the paradoxes and contradictions that fill our lives. It's a place that asks us to confront them, wrestle with them, and discuss them. This is why Scripture matters. How many people truly think Scripture is good news? When I used to think of good news, I used to be like, Scripture is good news because it's going to tell me what I can and can't do. It's going to tell me how to get to heaven. Did anybody else feel that way? Yeah. Mark chapter 1. In the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Do you know that when Mark said good news like that, that Mark literally was putting his life in danger? Like literally would have been killed for saying it. It's the time of the Roman Empire. And during the time of the Roman Empire, there was only one Son of God. Anybody know who it was? Caesar. I like good historically here in this church. Excellent. It was Caesar. Caesar was the son of God. And in Rome, when you defeated someone, you would send out propaganda to your people. What would the propaganda start with? Take a guess. No? Good news. It would start with good news. Good news. The Roman Empire has, by, uh, under the Caesar, son of God, has defeated blah, blah, blah. And that was it. Good news. Good news. The Roman Empire has killed Caesar, son of God. Mark gets up there, he goes, in the beginning was the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Oh, tell me that's not crazy. That's counter-revolutionary. He's like starting, he's like, he's sitting here and he's going, you know, Caesar is not God. This is my God. This is my God, and it's Jesus. Good news, the Romans are about violence, and Jesus is about peace. Good news, the Romans subvert, and Jesus lives up. Good news, the Romans bring death, Jesus brings life. And so now, when you're reading this scripture, you're not going, well, if I do this and I don't do that, I, hopefully I'll get to heaven. No, you're going, oh my gosh, there is a revolutionary way of living life with this Jesus who upends structures and who tells me that I can love my family completely differently than I've ever had before and tells me that this empire which I am under which uh, rules and oppresses is an empire of people that are, are difficult but people that I can love and people that I can show grace to just like Jesus Christ shows grace all the way to the point of death and then to the point of the resurrection this is why scripture matters it is filled with hope beyond hope it is filled with reconciliation beyond reconciliation it is filled with unification. It is filled with loving your enemies. It is filled with warring nations made new again. It's filled with people who were oppressed and hurt and didn't have food, knowing that there was a better way, a way of hope, a way out. This thing is living, and it's breathing, and it's scripture, and it's why Forefront matters. It's why Forefront reads the scripture. I'm calling you to dive in with new lenses, new ideas, find new life. Heavenly Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for your truths, the inspiration that you've given us through um, what we have. Allow us to be in awe of it. Allow us to be in awe of who you are, Jesus, and to wonder and to react and to be surprised and to have aha moments. Lord, as a church, I pray that we would challenge one another in our reading, challenge one another in the way that we um, read together, 
challenge one another in the way the Spirit works as we read. We pray grace in the name of all of you.